Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business. My name is Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Airlock Digital, the world's most awesome allow listing software provider and uh, the Airlock founders are joining me this week to talk about PowerShell constrained language mode and uh, how they're now supporting it. The idea being that if you're an Airlock customer, you'll be able to run any PowerShell script you want uh, in your environment in constrained language mode, but you'll still be able to allow list more powerful scripts, uh, but those more powerful scripts will be blocked uh, if they are not explicitly allow listed. So yeah, that is uh, quite useful. Uh, Microsoft doesn't really support third parties doing this though, so they had to get a bit hacky with it. Uh, so you'll hear how they did that a little bit later on it is both clever and safe and reliable and also kind of funny uh that is coming up later but first up of course it's time for a check of the week's security news with adam boileau and adam thank you for joining me i know you're actually traveling this week you're in australia you're not going to get a chance to come to shea gray up here on the north coast but uh you're in sydney at the moment right yeah, I certainly am, and it's actually it's really nice and blue and warm. It's quite a change from uh, where I normally live in Wellington. <laughs> yeah, especially this time of year. But yes. uh, yeah, you're doing some CCX business, is that right? Cyber CX. Uh, business? Yes. Yeah, out talking to some customers, you know, kissing babies, shaking hands, all that kind of thing. That's it. That's it. Pressing the flesh. That's yes. what they call it, right? Uh, so look, we're going to start off with an item uh, here. Catalan Kimpanu's write up here of a warning that's emanated from various uh, U.S. government agencies warning people in the space sector about uh, foreign intelligence service risks to the space sector in the United States. Yeah, there are a number of companies in the you know, US private space sector that are working on interesting stuff and, you know, the the modern space race is, you know, a real area of competition and especially, you know, some of the private sector Chinese companies uh, that are doing similar things to to SpaceX and Rocket Lab and uh, other space uh, space companies, space launch companies. There are a lot of space technology companies, satellite bus manufacturers, comm systems, um, you know, people doing, I mean, like even Amazon will sell you like satellite stuff as a service into AWS that you can just buy, you know, raw IQ feeds of, satellite you know radio data and stuff and then process it yourself so there's a lot of people a lot of players in this sector and a lot of competition so yeah lots to worry about uh, for the people in that industry lots to worry about should be uh should be a trademark of this podcast there's lots to worry about um you know you do get the sense that the stuff that the space sector holds is in many ways as sensitive as the stuff that the defense contractors uh hold but perhaps people in that sector aren't as paranoid as they should be. That's what this this warning letter feels like it's about, is saying, hey, you work in a highly targeted sector. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it certainly does. Um, I think, you know, if you work at a defence contract, you kind of understand, you know, where you mm. are in the world. But there's a, a now there is enough private sector space that maybe not everyone realises quite how controlled some of that information is, quite how sensitive some of it is. And know. quite how targeted it is, right? Because well, hackers yes. love going after space stuff. You look at all of the drama NASA's had since, you know, computers have been talking forever, to each other, yes. basically, right? <laughs> yeah. A group of Ukrainian uh, hackers claim to have dumped uh, the email data of a senior Russian politician that shows that he's involved in, uh, allegedly involved in money laundering and sanctions evasion and all of the sort of stuff you would expect a senior Kremlin politician to be involved in. 
you know, taking bribes to you know, permit construction on nature reserves, like you know, pretty classic stuff there for corrupt politicianness. Uh, and of course, yeah, the Ukrainians are very motivated to get up into uh, Russian politicians and other people's stuff, dump them out, embarrass them. Um, that's you know a fairly reasonable modus operandi for them, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, there's uh, you know, I don't know that any of the data in there sounds immediately surprising, but there's a big difference between suspecting someone is a bit crooked and having the email trails to show it. Well, I mean, I'm guessing that the politics in Russia is going to be uh, as as fraught as anywhere, probably more so. So this is just ammunition for this dude's enemies, you would think. Yes, exactly. And, you know, certainly as Ukraine spawning infighting amongst, you know, factions inside the Russian government has got to be pretty high on their list of things to do. Yeah, any idea who actually did this? I mean, is it uh, is it pretend hacktivists or real hacktivists or is it the SBU or do we, do we have any idea there? I mean, it's kind of hard to say. The group that does it uh, is called the Cyber Resistance, which, you know, pretty generic name. And they've been sharing the data uh, with some, you know, journalists and people who handle leaked stuff to investigate it. You know, we don't know more than that. Obviously, there are a lot of Ukrainians who are motivated and know how to use computers. So, you know, it could be real. It could be a bit of, you know, some government suggested. It could be, you know, we don't know where on that continuum it is. Uh, the piece on the record that we have in the in the news list uh, does have some comments from uh, Ilya Vityuk uh, talking about uh, how plenty of Ukrainians have been getting into plenty of Russian stuff. So, yeah. Now, speaking of Ilya Vityuk, yes. uh, he is the head of cyber for the SBU, which is the security service of Ukraine. Uh, Dmitry Alperovich and I did a joint interview uh, with Ilya, and uh, I published that one earlier this week. I found it a fascinating chat. I know you had a chance to listen to it, Adam. Any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I thought it was super interesting. I mean, there's so much uh, experience being gained by Ukraine in being the target of you know, so much cybering as part of a real conflict. And he makes you know a bunch of points around you know how this is one of the first real examples of proper cyber war as part of an ongoing you know actual kinetic war and things like uh, you know synchronizing cyber activities with kinetic you know, missile strikes etc cetera, etc cetera. um but also like understanding but see, see i found that, i found that interesting because a lot of analysts and commentators right have said oh you know this is coordination and whatever but you know i i, I sort of pressed him on that a bit and he said look you got to understand this is like soviet style thinking you know you're talking about an adversary where their missiles miss 80 percent of the time right so they just throw everything they can at a target and whether it gets it's the packets that do the job or a missile just happens to hit the target it was flung at, you know, this is the way they think. So, I, you know, it was just full of little insights like yeah. that, I thought. Yeah, I really enjoyed that particular one. And also some of the, uh, I think you asked about, you know, whether or not Ukraine had gotten a bunch of experience from some of the earlier attacks, you know, especially against the power grid back in the you know 2014-ish. Um, and Ilya said, yes, like that absolutely helped us train and prepare and harden our stuff against what we would see later on. And I think, you know, that's a pretty interesting insight. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, his whole thing was they were getting whacked so hard back in like 2015 that they had to get good at responding to cyber incidents. And, you know, I, I sort of asked him, well, do you think, you know, and, and I've heard this floated as a theory before, is that Russia made a strategic uh, mistake by doing some of these big, you know, power grid attacks in 2015 and, and, and sort of training up Ukraine on how to deal with this before the war began. And, you know, he made the point that in 2015, they probably didn't know they were going to be invading yes. Ukraine, right? So it can't really have been a strategic mistake. So look, all in all, I just thought it was a really fascinating 
interview with someone who's at the forefront of dealing with all of this. I also find the SBU, the way that it's structured, fascinating. So, you know, in Australia, in the United States, in England, you know, the Five Eyes countries, we've got a million different agencies that are responsible for different bits of cyber. Uh, in Ukraine, the SSU, you know, they can arrest people, they do signals intelligence, they do foreign operations, uh, you know, they, they do it all. Um, they run seams, they do incident response. So it's like this, <laughs> this sort of one cyber agency. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways for a situation like this, um, that's going to be very advantageous. He also did say too that they're still looking for help uh, from Western consultants in particular. So people who want to go to Ukraine, uh, you know, have a look at facilities, work out a shopping list essentially for what's needed and then they go out and they, they can ask people to provide that that equipment. But they're, they're really looking for security consultants who can visit and, and scope out work. So people can contact me or Dimitri uh, if they want to throw some time at that and go on a very long train ride from Poland to, to Kiev. <laughs> yeah, that would certainly be a you know a pretty interesting adventure and a very worthwhile cause indeed. So well, and if you want to get your you know get you like really looking at a at a challenging environment, I think yes, yeah, that's yeah, it's so incredible experience. It's very real. It's a, it's a hell of an opportunity. Anyway, so um, people can scroll one back in the feed and listen to that interview. But uh, I was I was stoked to do that, and thanks to Dimitri because he locked that one down and said, "Hey, do you want to come along?" And I'm like, "Yes, <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, that'd be great." Now, look, staying with cyber agencies and whatnot. Uh, we've got an interesting story here from Alexander Martin uh, from The Record, looking at how the National uh, Cybersecurity Centre, the NCSE in the UK, is tipping off companies when it looks like they're about to get ransomware. And it looks like, look, only a small, they're only reaching a small proportion of companies that are being targeted. But I think this is a very positive thing. I've seen news reports of other agencies. I think there's something similar in the United States that they're doing. I think it's great that agencies have started doing this and let's hope they can scale it up. Yeah, we've got this national intelligence apparatus and that's capable of spotting these things on the wire. You know, getting out and notifying individuals and companies uh, when they do see something is an excellent use of all those resources. Uh, I did think it was kind of interesting that the GCHQ has the same problem that almost everyone else who's ever tried to report unsolicited you know, security advice to people, uh, which is A, you have to find the right person to talk to, B, you have to convince them that you're not trying to scam them for something, uh, and then you know, actually doing that in a timely manner. I mean, I've you know, run some internet scanning tools in my time and found some funny stuff, and like the process of reporting it is actually by far the hardest part, you know, versus collecting the data or analyzing it or, or whatever else. So um, that was kind of reassuring for me uh, to see that they uh, have those problems too. But they've uh, set up a system where you can now sign up and provide your contact information so as to streamline that process. Yeah, yeah. People used to report stuff through me, you know, more like bugs yes. and stuff in company websites, and I've been there, you know. Yeah. And the reason they would report stuff through me is because I could do it friendly-like. Yes. You know, I could ring up a company and if they were a big enough company that have like a PR person or a pub, you know, public affairs person, I'd ring up and say, hey, I'm a journalist and, you know, one of my readers has, you know, found this thing and they told me because they don't want you getting salty at them. So yes. they figure you won't get salty <laughs> at me, but here's the details, go fix it. And, you know, usually you get a thank you. Uh, not so much in the case of Hell Pizza, but that's a different story. I was, I was at the center of a pretty major controversy in New Zealand. It's a long story. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, normally it worked out well. But then, you know, the volume of those sort of reports just grew so high that eventually I was like, I don't have time to do this anymore. Because it is hard, right? It, it is hard. And like these days, we would farm it off to a local cert. Like that's a, usually a pretty safe way to do it, especially for researchers. But back in the older days where you did just have to do it with personal contacts. Yep. Yeah, it was hard and, and took a lot of time. 
Yeah, that's right. Now, uh, let's have a look at Ecuador. Things are a mess in Ecuador at the moment. We've had a uh, presidential candidate assassinated recently. The election has just taken place. It happened on Sunday. And um, the... The voting system, the online voting system for people who are Ecuadorians outside of Ecuador, uh, looks like it got DDoSed. Yeah, there was some kind of interruption to that service. We haven't got any specifics about the nature of the DDoS, uh, but yeah, people were unable to vote from outside Ecuador, which obviously not ideal uh, in an election. Um, and as you say, there was a bunch of other stuff going on. There was an earthquake in Ecuador during that. Yeah, there was. Election, there was. There was an election, so. an earthquake during the election as well. Like they can't, they can't get a break. At the no, moment. they really can't. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the kind of after action looks like here. Like whether it was DDoS, whether there was. You know, just a whole bunch of load on the system they weren't prepared for. Like we've seen it in other some some other national systems where you know they think they're getting a DDoS, but actually it's just normal use for an unusual event, and then that triggers some response process. I think was it the Australian Census. Yeah, it was the Census where they. I think there was a tiny DDoS, and I think they took one box down, but they hadn't configured failover properly, so the yeah. whole thing fell over. And then when they put it back online, there was a whole bunch of queued events that started shooting out through the gateway and they saw this as exfil and panicked and pulled the plug. Yeah, Like yeah. the whole thing was just really appallingly managed both by the government and IBM. Um, who who were who were running it, but it was a it was a fascinating case study and like how not to do things. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So hopefully, Ecuador did actually get just DDoSed as opposed to DOSing themselves off the network. But you know, we don't we don't know yet. No, no, we don't know. And uh, hopefully, things can get better in Ecuador. And you know, they've had big ransomware problems over the last few years as well. Like things in Ecuador have just been um, hard. Let's put yes. it that way. Now we don't know if they're the size of a grain of rice, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> but the authorities in South Korea claim to have found malicious Chinese chips uh, in weather measuring equipment used by South Korea's Bureau of Meteorology. Uh, so this is the allegation. Uh, it's been reported in the in the Korean press. Catalan picked it up and did a little write-up as well uh, on this for the Risky Business News newsletter. Um, this is interesting because on one hand, you know, the instinct would be to say, uh, electron microscope scans or it didn't happen. Yes. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, we've seen that Chinese APT crews comprehensively uh, owned Australia's Bureau of Meteorology years and years ago. And with a very high level of tradecraft, it was obviously a priority target for them. Like this is stuff that they care about, this type of sensing um, in adversary nations. So it's a little bit hard to know what to say about this one. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, I'm in camp electron microscope scans or it didn't happen kind of thing, but that's just not how things work, really. Mm. Like they, The reports we've seen so far are pretty high level and pretty vague, but we have seen them you know, start a project to, I think we talked about it a while back, they started a project to audit a bunch of devices looking for evidence. Well, and this and is it, the thing. This Apparently, this is the event that kicked off that project. And you yes. think if it was complete like Bloomberg-style fiction – would they be spinning up a project like that? Well, exactly. That's exactly where I was going to go with that. Um, so, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see what more details look like. And, you know, when you read reports like this, on the one hand, you think Bloomberg grain of rice. And on the other hand, you think, well, I mean, NSA Ant catalog, you know, us five eyes have been backdoor on bits of hardware uh, with all sorts of creative techniques, you know, radio. Some of the reports here talk about, uh, like, uh, eavesdropping and then exfilling it via radio or something and like the ant catalog has hardware devices for doing that in it uh, mm. so like these things do exist and they have been used by intelligence agencies but like that whole bloomberg grain of rice situation 
just kind of muddied the waters a whole bunch around Chinese hardware implants like this. So Yeah. But I mean, that was an allegation that it was like widespread, right? Yes. And like had infiltrated everything. Whereas this is like, we think this very specialist bit of equipment is off. Yes. And that's a different type of allegation, one that's more plausible. I do wonder though, if it's maybe just something in some bit of firmware or whatever, and some of this has got lost in translation. We just don't know at yeah. the moment. Yeah, it is difficult to tell. And like, as you said, reading the machine translation of Korean TV news reports, you know, was not super helpful in providing a bunch of, you know, the details that I wanted. <laughs> yeah. And I've linked through to a Korean news report uh, from television on that, where they've got an animation of a integrated circuit with the Chinese, like it's red. It's got the Chinese flag on it. <laughs> You know? So they, they know how to do that sort of yep. journalism as well. <laughs> John Grieg at The Record uh, has a report on this. We've got one going out today uh, in Risky Biz News as well. Let's have a look at this, oh man, this supply chain attack via a bit of software called Cobra DockGuard, which is a piece of software. It's a Chinese piece of software that people just love to use as a vector to infect people with malware. With. Like, it's, it's crazy. But walk us through this most recent one. Yeah, so in this case, uh, the software itself, Cobra DockGuard, uh, appeared to have malicious updates shipped by its manufacturer, by its vendor. Uh, and we don't know exactly how that happened, but it got pushed out uh, to about 100 devices that ran the software, most of which were in Hong Kong. Uh, and mm. then that led onwards to uh, the PlugX you know, core plug, plug X malware being deployed on the backdoor, uh, and then onwards to presumably XFIL. Uh, this was spotted by Symantec, uh, and they don't have an attribution for it to any you know, particular thing other than that it's probably China. Well, um, it's Plug X, right? They're like, well, Chinese APT crews love to use Plug X. Yes. It's basically Symantec's position on this. Yeah, and then we look at, so there were some early reports from a few, like a couple of years back, uh, with uh, where ESET had identified a similar kind of supply chain attack uh, through Cobra DockGuard, but attributed to someone entirely different. But also a Chinese APT. But also a Chinese APT. <laughs> so um, when you say someone completely different, okay, not that I think it's more different. like someone a little bit different. Medium than different. completely different. <laughs> yes. Uh, but we don't know a whole bunch more than that. I mean, 100 uh, installs is pretty targeted. Uh, yeah. Obviously, there's plenty of stuff going on in Hong Kong that uh, China is interested in, but we don't really know a whole bunch more than, than that. Well, and the malware won't run on American or British systems, <laughs> right? Like there's, you know, which is, it's uncharacteristically... Restrained. Yeah, exactly, right? It's uncharacteristically targeted um, for a Chinese APT crew, which I found kind of an interesting aspect to all of this. And I guess we don't really know whether or not this the company that makes this stuff is cooperating because it's being coerced into sending these types of updates uh, uh, to people because of some Chinese national security law or whether some MSS crew or whatever has just hacked the, the software update service. Like that's the part we don't know and that's the part that's kind of interesting here. Yeah, and the earlier attacks from... from 2021 were financially motivated. They were going after, I think, a gambling firm in Hong Kong. So it may just be that, like, their web servers are, or they, you know, but weren't they weren't they attributed to an APT group, or is this one of the other supply chain attacks against this software? I think that must be one of the other supply chain yeah, attacks. Yeah, okay, okay. But right. um, you know, it's kind of hard to say, other than that, some people got owned by running this stuff, and you know, the previous reports were also in Hong Kong. That was a gambling firm in Hong Kong that had been targeted. So. Maybe that's just where the user base is. Who who really knows? 
Yeah, I mean, we did see other reports. I don't think we've got it in the run sheet this week, but we uh, there was another report somewhere looking at Chinese APT activity against uh, online gambling users who are customers of Southeast Asian online casinos and everything because a lot of that stuff got pushed out of Macau and now there's targets against... Anyway, there is a bit of an APT group and online gambling nexus, which is weird, but there you go. That's how it be. Uh, now, look, speaking of supply chain stuff, now this one didn't seem to really get picked up anywhere else, uh, but someone took, Aquasec, took a look at PowerShell Gallery, which is the official repo for PowerShell scripts, and found that it's not very good. Um, so Catalan wrote this up for Risky Biz News in his main uh, slot here. Why don't you walk us through it? Uh, so uh, PowerShell Gallery is is the kind of official package repository for PowerShell modules, similar to you know npm or PyPy in the you know Python and Node worlds. Um, and Microsoft runs this portal, and you can upload software to it, and it has some degree of you know you can um, so you have to be authenticated to Microsoft when you upload software. So there is some tying to identity and and to validated accounts, but. The actual web interface that shows you the software repositories shows the vendor or author from the package metadata, not, and you have to kind of click through to find out which user account this was associated with. So it has a bunch of the ingredients for, uh, you know, package swapping, type right? swapping, impersonating yeah, people, yeah. and they don't have any built-in prevention for registering names that are similar to other ones. And there's a bunch of sort of social practices there in terms of how you name packages, like with a particular prefix for a particular Microsoft product, like Azure often has an AZ underscore prefix, but none of that's enforced. It's just, you know, um, convention, convention to culture. do so. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, and so uh, these researchers from Acrosec put up a module that, you know, used a dot instead of an underscore, I think, in its name, uh, you know, with a popular package. And that kind of typo squatting, basic typo squatting stuff that the other package repositories have had to learn about and deal with over the years, none of that kind of exists in PowerShell Gallery yet either. So it's got the ingredients for being abused and... You know, I don't know. Quite a lot of people who use PowerShell in an enterprise context maybe don't come from that kind of open source world where they're more aware of that supply chain. They just think, hey, it's Microsoft's thing, therefore it's Microsoft code, therefore we can trust it. It's not a, a concern so much. So I think yeah, there's a bunch of ingredients that combine well there to be a pretty good vector for attack into enterprise and, and Microsoft cloud environments. Yeah, and I've noticed too that like when people start doing funny stuff, to repos it starts slowly and then it's everywhere very very quickly so you yes. just sort of get the sense that like you know they might cruise along and it'll be fine because attackers are you know seem mostly focused on like doing weird stuff to npm right but <laughs> at some point you would th i mean look getting a malicious powershell script into an enterprise you would think would be quite tasty Yes, Let's put yeah. it that impact way. wise, definitely pretty big. Uh, yeah. And if do, do a lot of people use this PowerShell gallery? Like, if you are looking for a script to do X, Y, Z, like, is this where you go to get it? Yes, it certainly is uh, pretty wide in pretty widespread use, and in part because some of the common dependencies, like, if you get a PowerShell script from somewhere else, quite often it will depend on stuff that comes from PowerShell gallery. Uh, because that's the kind of standard set of libraries and things that people will use. So, like, I've certainly PowerShell galleried uh, whilst doing stuff, and it made me feel a little weird from a supply chain point of view, but it's in <laughs> yeah. a VM and, you know, but the creds you have to then give your PowerShell to have it do useful stuff. Like, I was doing some Teams automation because the Teams GUI is terrible, and I wanted to do something, you know, programmatically because I'm a Unix man, uh, and, you know, it's got tokens to auth and to CyberCX corporate 
yeah. teams and, you know, uh, what is, what's the impact of that could be quite bad. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, access up into cloud stuff often is more useful than just system or just admin on a local machine, right? I mean, there's so mm. much you can do. Uh, and when everything is bodged together with SharePoint in the cloud, you know, there's a it's a, it's a good place to end up. I mean, I thought this was interesting research. I was surprised it didn't really get much play in the yeah, you know, cybersecurity press. You, you too? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Like my initial feeling when I saw PowerShell Gallery was mm, sus. Yeah. But what can you do, right? If it's dependency, if it's where the software comes from, it's the official way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I felt yeah. bad. Yeah. Well, good job to Catalan for uh, digging that one out and, and, and drawing some attention to yes. it. Let's talk about, oh God, I'm sorry. We're going to have to talk about AI uh, briefly, <laughs> Adam. Because look, a couple of weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, if you were on social media, you would have caught the kerfuffle about changes to Zoom's uh, 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 you know, user agreement, right? Where they basically said, we're changing our license terms, all of your content, all of your conversations, you know, you, you have to agree to allow us to use that to train large language models. <laughs> and everyone just said, wait a second, no, like absolutely not. Everybody kicked and screamed and, you know, quite reasonably so. And eventually Zoom uh, was forced to back down from that and change their, their terms of service back. But... Uh, you know, we've got a, a, just a bit of a think piece here from Lindsay Wilkinson over at Cybersecurity Dive. I think this is going to be an issue, right? When you've got all of these SaaS providers who now want to train LLMs and various AI models, not just language models, on all of the you know, enterprise data that flows through their systems – this could turn into a problem. And what I mean by that is we could see data leaking out of your enterprise because one of your idiot SaaS providers wants to be the next AI unicorn. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Like this is pretty concerning. And like the Zoom one, I think, got a little overhyped. But as a general kind of set of concerns like that was my that was my initial take too adam that it was overhyped which is why we didn't talk about it and then i actually read the terms of service and i'm like holy god <laughs> do you know what i mean like yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. really you thought people are being a bit hysterical there but then when you looked at the tos changes it's like no they really were trying to do that <laughs> i mean i guess yeah like monetizing data and you know turning all of the stuff you've got lying around and flowing through your networks into some kind of value is you know very much in the wheelhouse of our modern you know surveillance capitalist world well, we got to think of the benefit, right? So if, if they can if they can profile you based on your Zoom chats, maybe they could sell you a service for ten bucks a month where they can spin up an AIU to participate in the meetings for you, and you don't have to go to the meetings. So you know, think of the golden opportunity that everyone just lost by telling them to change their TOS. <laughs> but that you know, is a what, unicorn. That's a billion dollar unicorn that's idea a, right that's there. A, that's a hundred billion dollar <laughs> company right there. But you know, what do you think of this? What do you think of this idea that? I don't think companies are going to be careful enough with the way they're training their models. I mean, look, we got another story here about um, uh, people hacking away at LLMs at DEF CON, right? Um, and one interesting anecdote, I think it's, uh, it, it, I don't think this one happened at DEF CON, but an interesting anecdote I saw recently about someone, you know, abusing a large language model based chatbot is they told the LLM that their name was the credit card number that the LLM had on file for that person and then asked them to say their name, and it gave them the credit card number. <laughs> so you've got, you know, in, in a world where these models are not so well understood, I just sort of feel like these SaaS providers shouldn't be throwing their customers' data into them because they don't know how it's going to be processed, how it's going to be regurgitated, and across what boundaries. Like, you know, it just seems... 
hopefully people are going to be careful, but I just feel like there's an incident coming, you know? Yes. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Like, it's such a new field overall, and then the field of abusing them, breaking them, you know, making them do things they weren't supposed to do is also very, very new. And that, um, the story you're talking about, um, uh, the stuff at DEF CON was some competitions about making language models do things they weren't supposed to do. And there's a bunch of creative solutions, and there's a bunch of, like, you know, 11-year-old kids showing up and breaking them in interesting and novel ways, right? There's so much to learn about how to build these things, how to run them, how to train them, and how to break them, and no one is ready to put mm. all sorts of sensitive data from all sorts of companies into a model and then use it safely. Like, you know, I don't, you know, certainly not Zooms. I don't know who else is going to be able to do this without breaking it. I mean, even just uh, like in the uh, Microsoft 365 world, you can go to Bing and like hit the corp tab and then you get corporate documents and stuff in the Bing results. And it's terrifying, really useful for finding stuff, but also mm. a little bit terrifying. And there's not even any AI involved in that, I guess. Like, that's just regular searching stuff. But it does make me feel a little bit weird. And the first time it did it to me, like, I just went through a search result, and it's like a regular Bing page into mixing internet results with corporate results. I was a little, yeah, a little weird. A little weird. Yeah, but, I mean, that's just you feeling weird because you're old, yes, right? Yes, that is, yes. So that's that's fine. <laughs> you know, what, what I'm worried about oh, man, more so... A cloud. What I'm worried about more so is not so much that people will abuse the models to get it to do X, Y, Z. It's more that they're just going to inadvertently disclose a yes. bunch of stuff they shouldn't disclose because they were trained on stuff that should be confidential. Yeah. That's more what I'm worried about. And, you know, as much as they say, oh, no, we're going to, you know, we're going to keep all of that training separate and everyone will have their own models. So there's going to be crossover. Like, I just don't think people have fully thought through about how to put boundaries on these things. That's more my, my concern. Yeah. And it's so young that we just don't, yeah, we haven't come up with how should we do this in a way that's not going to go horribly wrong? Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, let's talk about... Uh, we don't really talk, talk bugs, bugs, bugs all the time, but we have been this year because there's been all these bugs in stuff like MDM and Fortinet and whatever, but there, there's another Ivanti bug. Uh, this time it's in its like secure mobile gateway or something. What is it called? It's Sentry, Sentry. Security Product. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Great name. Sentry is your security product and it has a 9.8 CVSS bug in it. Um, I think that one's being uh, exploited in the wild as well. So yeah, that's a, that's a that's a disaster uh, for Ivanti customers. And also, we got a warning out of CISA talking about a bunch of Citrix vulnerabilities being exploited in the wild. Yeah, this is in Citrix share file. So I mean, <laughs> you got Citrix and you got file sharing on the edge of the network. That should give you tell you everything you need to know. Um, but yeah, yet more bugs uh, in that, and once again being exploited in the wild. So bad time if you haven't already patched that. Uh, but I, don't know. I just feel like at that point, running any file sharing product on the internet, internet is probably getting you in trouble. Whether it's well, or any VPN or any or MDM any VPN or any, or any, you any know, MDM like or just, any, yeah. anything with security in its name or a padlock on its website. <laughs> oh, bad times. So I had, I had an interesting conversation yesterday with the founder of a company out of Israel called Zero Network. So I did a snake oilers recording uh, for the next edition that's coming up. So full dis disclosure, they're, they're, you know, they're sponsoring that slot in snake oilers. But Zero Networks do like micro segmentation, right? Um, but it's clever. Like everything in your enterprise has a firewall in it already. All your Windows boxes do, right? So basically they just a control plane for all, the, all of your existing firewalls. And it's... It's a pretty cool idea. I, as far as I know, it works well and it's actually easy to set up, right? So I've, I've spoken to people who absolutely love them, but they've thrown together this other pro product, which I find really, really interesting because they've got all of the smarts they need to link stuff like SSO through to network rules, right? So what they've done is they
they see everyone getting owned through their Fortinets. So they've created a, a, a VPN product where you can't actually access the port before you SSO. So you SSO and then it opens a port to the originating IP, your originating IP, and then you can, um, it's essentially WireGuard from that point onwards. The reason I'm bringing this up is because you and I were talking about this before we got recording. And I, I think this is an awesome idea because we were talking about how much of an uh, intractable problem this VPN stuff is, right? Like if you're a Fortinet user, like you don't really have many good options that you can rip and replace. This is the first thing I've heard of that's interesting. But you made the point that like, oh, well, you know, what if your IP is changing? Uh, I just think tough shit. Like you'll have to re-auth and it's better than your whole enterprise getting burned down. But I think for people who are working from home, right, you know, IP addresses are relatively static. They do this, you know, they, they do this via SSO and then IP tables rule change to allow you to access the VPN. I mean, that that is going to stop the opportunistic targeting of this thing, even if it gets a bug in it, which it will because they all do, it will prevent the opportunistic targeting of that by crews who do that stuff in bulk. I think it's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, bodging it into your existing Okta or Microsoft centralized auth and then only making it accessible to the network after that, I mean, that's it's, it's not a bad idea. Uh, and you've got all the pieces to put it together and make it happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, from an operational point of view, as I say, I had a few kind of like, as the admin, I would feel, you know, there's a few edge cases here where it's not going to work. But as you say, like, if you're just working from home, if it's just not reachable by, you know, Russian hacker crews, then that's better than uh, than putting the web interface on the internet and getting it hacked. Yeah, I mean, if the if the if the whole problem with this is that people have to reauth. When they go from the train, you know, they were they were tethered on the train and then they need to re-auth when they get into their home office. I mean, you know, Beats being owned by yes. <laughs> Russian passenger yes. crews, yes, right? Yeah, it does. <laughs> like, I think that's a small inconvenience and it's kind of a nitpicky one, but that's what you do. That's, that's, what, that's my roll. job. That is what I do around here is I yeah. pick the nits. Anyway, I just, you know, again, like, sorry to inject kind of a sponsored content into the news section. <laughs> I, just, I just thought it was an interesting approach, which is like, sure, why not have... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> why not? Why not? Right? Yeah. Like... If you've got an SSO provider, right, you don't need open ports until you've authenticated, right? So why not just do it that way? Anyway, real funny one here from the record. Uh, another one by John Gregg. Australia's domain administrator, which is this weird nonprofit org or outer, one of the ransomware crews is like, we're going to dump all of your data. And Outer has come out and said, but you don't have any of our data. There hasn't been an incident. And it's really funny because it looks like <laughs> this this group claiming to have their data uh, just didn't. Yeah, I think the I saw something about they maybe they'd owned a customer, like someone who had an Australian domain, and maybe they got confused and stole his data instead and then decided it was Outer's. But the whole story is a bit ridiculous and... You know, we are seeing some ransomware crews kind of come off the rails a bit like that. You know, running, we had that one, was it Lockbit that was running out of disk space and couldn't actually leak well, the and, data. And they're claiming to have data that they didn't have. And I think this is a turning point because, you know, for ransomware and data extortion, the thing that got these groups paid is they had credibility. Yes. And I think two things are changing, right? Their credibility is starting to look a bit wobbly. Um, so that's one thing that's happening. And the second thing that's happened is the volume of data leaks now. It's just been like the impact from people caring about it, like has been so blunted just by the volume of stuff that they are constantly leaking. So like it's just become normal. Why would you pay? Yeah, I've uh, never uh, thought data extortion was going to be a sustainable, 
you know, criminal business. Yeah, I think you're, you're very right about the scale issue. And then, you know, one of early on in, in the ransomware you know, world, we did see them like reaching out to journalists and customers and whatever, trying to raise the profile of the data that had been leaked. And early on, you know, some journalists were engaging with that. And now I think you kind of get the feeling that most of them are understand that they are helping the criminals by doing that. And so there's much more reluctance to rummage through that data as you, plus the volume uh, is just really yeah. hard. I, I have a feeling too, a lot of this stuff is going to drop off the internet because they're running out of disk. So the idea <laughs> that once something's on the internet, it's there forever. I think sensitive PII that's been dropped by these crews, it's there for a little while. And okay, maybe some people have saved it onto their computers and whatever, but what's the motivation to put that back on the internet? So let, let's see. Let's see how all of that plays out. I just... Yeah, I wonder. Anyway, what else have we got here? <laughs> Anon files, which is like paste bin, but you can put all sorts of stuff on it, uh, is closing down. Funnily enough, uh, there's been a little bit of site abuse happening there, Adam. <laughs> really? A little bit of little bit of uh, illegal content uh, being uh, being put on the old Anon files, and the admins have just come out and said, "Yeah, we've had enough." Basically, yeah, surprise, I mean, surprise. Petabytes of other people's files filled with all sorts of bad things and constant complaints and constant abuse, and yeah, they're just well and truly over it. I kind of don't know what they expected, but yeah, it, it lasted longer than you would normally expect a, you know, a place that just straight up let you post files with no author, no anything else. But uh, yeah, goodbye and on files. Now we've got a Dan Gooden story here. Why don't you talk us through uh, the, the wonderful secure way that Windows can set its system clock? So having accurate system time is pretty important. And as we move to putting SSL everywhere and having crypto everywhere, you have to have accurate clocks to be able to validate, like, is the certificate correct? Is it a you know, legitimate certificate and so on? And so bootstrapping a valid time without a valid time, like without the availability of full SSL validation is a little fiddly. And Microsoft came up with what it thought, I guess, was a pretty good idea, which is they connect to a bunch of different web servers. And during the authentication, like during the certificate exchange process for SSL, the server tells you what it thinks the time is, unless you're open SSL, in which case it puts a random number in it because, hey, you might be able to use the server's time to do some sneaky attack. Um, and... This process, you know, so it's meant to sample a bunch of different SSLs, collect their system times, and then use that to get the time close enough to do regular time synchronization. And this mostly works, but not 100% of the time, because if you're in a weird network where maybe you're being proxied or you end up getting a bad set of servers, or maybe there's some other software bug we don't quite know about, um, dealing basically more speculated in this article that you know maybe there's some software bug and you know if the randomly generated time you get from over SSL happens to meet some certain criteria anyway net result is some windows boxes sometimes will just set their time wrong and that can break stuff in ways that are surprising and non-deterministic and there's at least yeah, one not, we should point out not not little wrong but yeah like quite, quite a lot quite wrong. big wrong yes quite, quite a wrong. lot wrong um and yeah, there's a few network engineers and you know people who have to support these systems who are just like, what the actual hell, Microsoft? What are you? What were you even thinking? And Microsoft but it took him a while to figure out even what had happened. Yes, because right? like that's the funny thing. Yeah, that's just such a weird thing to happen to have your system time just be all of a sudden, you know, half a year off what it's supposed to be, and then randomly things start to break depending on the ages of certificates. And so it's the kind of non-determinism <laughs> that, as a sysadmin, 
really does just make you cry. And when it's being done to you on purpose by the vendor, it's just doubly worse. Uh, yes. So I think given the amount of Windows servers there are in the world and the relatively, you know, the relative kind of infrequency of it going horribly wrong like this, it's not the world's biggest problem, but it is quite funny. It is. And this stuff is on by default, yes. right? So it's kind of like that thing. It's very low risk of it happening to you. But it is just that thing that, you know, it's they, they put a rake on the lawn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And very big lawn, you probably won't step on it, but. Yeah. I mean, you know. it's been like this since, what, the mid-2010s. Yeah. So, like, clearly it's just not that bad, but it still hurts the sysadmin in me. Yes. Yeah. Very, very big field, very small rake. Yes. <laughs> Still, just I, I just really enjoyed that that yes. write up. I thought yeah, it was it's good. good fun, mate. That's actually it for the uh, for the news. I do hope you enjoy uh, the rest of your stay in our wonderful country, my friend. And um, we'll chat to you again next week. I will keep an eye out for drop bears, and assuming I survive that, yes, we will talk next week. <laughs> That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. Big thanks to him for that. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now. And we're going to be talking about PowerShell constrained language mode with the uh, with two of the co-founders of Airlock Digital, the greatest allow listing software company in the world. Uh, so this is a mode you can enable on a Windows box via Microsoft's app locker or software restriction policies. Uh, although SRP has actually been quietly deprecated in Windows 11, but yes, that's, that's one way that you could deploy it. Uh, but the idea is you enable a mode on a box which allows PowerShell scripts to run, but only if they use a relatively safe subset of PowerShell's functionality. So Airlock has decided to support this feature as well. Uh, so you can turn on constrained language mode uh, PowerShell scripts for your whole enterprise, but run more powerful scripts uh, only if they're on your allow list. Uh, an issue here though, is that Microsoft didn't build like an API to let third parties do this. So the Airlock team had to get a little bit creative. So here's Airlock's co-founder and CEO, David Cottingham to kick off the discussion. And the other voice you'll hear later on in this interview uh, is co-founder and CTO, Daniel Shell, uh, sounding a bit croaky as he is suffering from the con flu. Enjoy. Basically, there's this problem with allow listing where, uh, you know, lots of people are running PowerShell scripts all the time. Right, And PowerShell is a great framework because it provides a huge amount of capability for system administrators, but also attackers as well. So a while ago in Windows, Microsoft introduced this mode in PowerShell called constrained language mode. And what it allows is for users to use a interactive PowerShell session uh, whilst also limiting access to features and APIs that could be abused by attackers. So you cannot uh, you know, do things like .NET, uh, COM APIs. You can't base64 decode and encode content because that can be used for obfuscation of, you know, uh, to get payloads around antivirus yeah, and yeah. payloads and, and things like that, right? Um, so uh, it, it finds that balance where you can say, okay, I'm going to allow all my users in, in the organization to use PowerShell in a safe, limited way that allows them to use the basic functionalities, but then sort of lock behind anything that could be dangerous into a, into a, a mode where you have to check that the code is trusted and validated. Now, uh, this only works with uh, software restriction policies, AppLocker and WDAC. And many of our customers were saying, Hey, so uh, you know, I I really like what Airlock is doing. I had constrained language mode with AppLocker. You guys don't, and can you introduce it, please? And we sort of scratched our heads for a while and went, "Okay, we'd love to do that, no brainer." But 
there's no real APIs to do it. Well, We're and also, sort of like, out. I know the way that you guys handle PowerShell, which is that you can restrict it in such a way that only, like, trusted processes can run it and you can allow list individual scripts and things like that. So, you know, really, for the average Airlock user, you shouldn't need to do this. Well, correct, but it's also really nice to be able to say, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to offer you PowerShell. You can use it without actually tripping over some sort of block event, right? Just just reducing more of that yeah, friction. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and, and just making it so even So for people smoother. who don't want to do it right. <laughs> well, I guess. It, it's actually, that's a really interesting point now. We're getting into the, the period of product development where, uh, you know, we started out version one being like, no, we're going to do hash-based only allow listing. And, you know, we were all security purist about it. And we, we still really want to deliver that solid security outcome, but we're now sort of straying into those those edge cases where, you know, we're sort of providing the features that it's like, okay, if you want to do that, you can, but we're going to put some guardrails on it, right? Yeah. So, and yeah. I, I'm imagining that's what this is, right? So you can, Correct. so now your customers, if they want to allow all constrained language mode PowerShell in their environment, you support that. Yeah, that's that's correct. Well, you can you can set it to constrain by default, but if you trust a script, then it will run in full language mode. Okay. So it will say this script contains capabilities that. So if something is not explicitly allow listed, it can still run in constrained language mode. That's correct. Okay, yeah. I mean that and, seems and, like yeah. I can understand why some people would want that. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And so we were sort of looking at okay, well, how, how do we do this? And and it there's there's no way to sort of influence directly PowerShell you know, that mode without, we, we quickly looked at the source code of PowerShell and realized we're going to have to pretend to be app locker on the system oh, and no. emulate the checks that, because PowerShell just as a project, it doesn't have support for anything else other than the Microsoft native technologies. So uh, I guess when PowerShell loads, uh, the way it works is it drops this file on disk called a PS script policy test file on the system and it loads it and it's and it looks at, well, what response did I get from loading that file? Was it actually, um, you know, was it just blocked? Was it allowed? Or there's a special flag called error access disabled by policy, which is something that AppLocker and the subsystem returns. And if it gets that, it knows that it's in that mode. Or the other thing that it does is if it detects application control policies registered on the system. And it does that by checking registry keys. It looks for the registry keys for, you know, WDAC um, at launch time to see if there are actually rules that are actually loaded on the system. And it does that in a certain precedent. So it starts with WDAC, then it looks at AppLocker, then then it goes down to software restriction policies. Um, and and it, it's kind of like, I, I don't know, it's sort of like they're not really tightly coupled. It's sort of like this external a little bit of a hacky thing where it's trying to just test the environment to see what it should do. So um, we essentially had to look at those calls and try and intercept those calls and and return. Well, you're going to return a values. different result based on whether or not something's on a list, right? That's correct. Yeah. Exactly. So you can't just do like a, a a environment check and go, oh no, you know, it's constrained mode only. It has to be well, it's constrained mode only if it's not on this list, which means that you're going to have to be doing, did you do it through the registry? We, well, we, we, we had to, <laughs> yeah. like there's no, there's no So other you're doing like do on it. the fly reg key changes based on yeah. what it is that's trying to load. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then also you run into the problem where you're like, I don't want to change the customer's registry keys because then 
you end up in those situations where, okay, if I uninstall the product, I've actually modified the system. Yeah. Um, you know, so what we do at sort of filter time is we don't modify the registry keys, but we intercept those callbacks and we actually change the values dynamically. Yeah, that's right. Actually okay. Coming back to the interpreter, so we we don't actually have to write any of the. Changes so you're intercepting out. registry queries. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. I mean yeah. that works. Like you know, as we say, it's not dumb if it works. I mean, it's not the prettiest thing. It would be nice if they had an API to allow you to do this, but yeah, that's it. I, I know Daniel said gross. Uh, you know, quite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think editing the registry is gross, but doing this transparently on the fly, I think that's kind of cool. And it's kind of like you know, as a you know third-party software security vendor, we have to sort of think of these creative solutions mm. to do things. You know, another big example, you know, where there's a lot of very limited visibility in the ecospaces like um, .NET assembly loads, like, you know, something that we've invested a lot of time in, um, because again, there's no APIs to hook them from loading. Um, so we've had to, you know, develop our own ways of, you know, determining files of the type and then processing them. So, you know, there's a yeah, lot of yeah. investment because I guess, you know, with um, Microsoft's development, you know, they're developing their own solutions now and they can make that work internally. Um, but for, you know, third parties, you, you have to find a way. Just back on this constrained language mode for PowerShell, I'd imagine that there would be a lot of PowerShell scripts in an enterprise that you could run in this mode, right? That don't need to do the sketchy things that it Correct. won't let you do. So that's great. And I can imagine that, yeah, for a lot of um, uh, for a lot of customers, just being able to say, you know, anything risky needs to be allow listed, anything in constrained mode can just go, 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 because then you're getting the best of both worlds. I'd say so 100% understand it. My question to you is, you know, you heard me refer a couple of times to my just gut reaction, which is that these things, even in constrained language mode, would still carry some risk. Is that me just being, you know, too suspicious? Like, can you write malicious PowerShell scripts that that will get stuff done even when they're running in constrained mode? That's my question. Well, I, I think it's always about how high the bar is, yeah. you know, and, and an attacker, just, just like any developer, I mean, the, the whole software ecosystem when you develop now is why write my own functionality if I can just import this module and it does 90% of the things for me, right? And 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 uh, attackers sort of have the same mindset, right? It's, it's I've got to get my objectives quickly. I need to build this thing that's reliable. And you're really stopping the 99% of adversaries that so you're uh, going to stop the PowerShell script, which just auto owns the box. Correct. But you might not stop them being able to achieve a couple of objectives, like moving a file around or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, David Cottingham and Daniel Shell, who we have not heard much from today because he is uh, suffering from con flu. Uh, great to chat to you both, and uh, yep. yeah, look forward to doing it again. Cheers. Thanks for having us, Patrick. Cheers, Patrick. That was Daniel Shell and David Cottingham there from Airlock Digital. Find them at airlockdigital.com. And uh, thanks to them too for distributing risky business stickers in Vegas. Uh, it's funny actually because after Black Hat, they had them at their booth at Black Hat, uh, but afterwards people kept messaging Daniel asking them, oh, we missed you at the booth. You know, do you have do you have risky biz stickers? So he started like dead dropping them. He started setting up stashes. So when people would message him, he'd say like, under the pot plant on level three next to the plenary session or whatever. So he wouldn't have to organize meetups, which was very uh, good thinking. I'm going to have to remember uh, the sticker dead drop idea uh, for next time I'm in the US. But um, yeah, thanks to the Airlock team for doing that for me. Uh, but that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back on Friday with another edition of the Seriously Risky Business podcast with Tom Uren in the Risky Biz News RSS feed. Uh, we're running that one a day late this week. Uh, but until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thank you.